episode one. We are live. We are recording right now. This is awkward. Hi there. I'm Blake. And I'm Rochelle. And I'm neurodiverse. And I'm neurotypical. Okay, so I'm here with my wife, Rochelle, and I'm autistic. Wait. You don't sound autistic. Well, uh, what does an autistic person Wait. sound like? You're autistic? Yeah, I'm telling you that. You don't even look autistic. But, but we're talking about... Yeah, but, but I don't buy it. But I, I was diagnosed with autism and ADHD and anxiety and depression. You don't sound autistic. Welcome to You Don't Sound Autistic. You make sure you're getting close enough to the microphone. It's, I can see that little line right there, that yeah. waveform. That's you. See the big one? Yeah. The big one is me. Oh, okay. My waveform's hung like a horse. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's talk about why we're here today. So we're here to start uh, the first episode of You Don't Sound Autistic. It's a podcast dedicated to illuminating neurodiversity and really shining a light on what that means. Um, both oh, I thought it was so that we could teach people not to sound autistic. No. Oh, nuts. What no. am I doing here then? All right, continue. <laughs> I would love you to be yourself. All right, I am being myself. Perfect. And, and I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry that you're sorry. No, it's okay. I, I do think there's a lot of things to talk about here. Um, I'm neurotypical, so everyone thinks that's better. I am not necessarily sure it is, um, but at the same time, you're neurodiverse, and that means Should what? we introduce ourselves? Should we have uh, use our names and stuff? We haven't really... Is this the beginning of the episode? Oh, crap. Hi uh, there, I'm Blake. And I'm Rochelle. And I'm neurodiverse. And I'm neurotypical. And we're married. Sort of. With a child. Definitely. Who's also neurodiverse. Absolutely. And we found out all of this in the last year. Yes. So it's been a rocky road. Oh, and there was a global My pandemic somewhere what? on top of all this. Right. So it's been really easy, as everyone can probably imagine. <laughs> but we've learned a lot. And it's one of those things where, you know, along the journey, we realize there is um, a very fragmented network and there are a lot of questions and you don't usually know where to go. So we thought we'd come out and share our journeys because we've learned a lot. And it doesn't have to be so hard for everyone else. That's true. Yeah. Yeah. What are my credentials here? My credentials. Well, I'm a, I'm a Scorpio. Um, I'm with a Taurus rising. Oh, with a Taurus rising. I've got ADHD, and that's where this whole journey kind of started for for us as a family before our son was born. So back to ADHD, which is a dick huge disorder, <laughs> and I'm dyslexic. So ADHD is attention deficit hyperactivity disorder mm -hmm. and it can go undetected. And for me, Rochelle and I were having issues in our relationship. So I decided to go see a therapist and it just happened to be that that particular therapist was an expert in ADHD and asked me, has anyone ever told you that you have ADHD? And I was like, no way. Because growing up, I would I would say I had a selective learning disorder or an SLD. I would always like to make up these terms for things that I thought I was struggling with because I found that when I was really interested in the subject like history or any any creative like plays and stuff, like I was the Wizard of Oz in fourth grade and I memorized every single person's lines in the entire show, had the whole thing down pat. But then when it would come to other schoolwork like math, I was a complete lunatic and couldn't remember how to do anything. I was always behind in school. So I would say I had a, le a selective learning disorder. And my mom would just say, well, you, you just want people to think you have a problem. Y you don't actually have an issue. You're just not trying hard enough. Fast forward to when I met my therapist, my previous therapist. I've had many therapists since and plan to have more. So she she gave me all this paperwork to fill out and gave me stuff for Rochelle to fill out and I basically ticked every single box and they called me the poster child for ADHD. I went to go see Dr. Robotnik. What, what's his real name? William Dodson. Dr. Dodson. And not to uh, disparage him because I don't want to get sued, but he basically was like, uh, is that your money? That's your money. Great. Okay. Yep. Uh, here's your thing that says you have ADHD and you know, go, go about your way. Maybe that's not exactly how it went down, but it felt like that. Rochelle was there for the first session and he did 
very much say like again you were the poster child for ADHD so it felt like I was thrown into this world and was just told I had ADHD I didn't feel evaluated um I felt very confused I didn't understand like here I am I'm in my 30s and they're just saying I have this thing that I thought children had and I thought that you know you never hear about adults having ADHD except for people that self-diagnose oh I have ADHD just like I used to say oh I have uh OCD or I have obsessive compulsive disorder, which I actually don't. Technically, I have OCD tendencies now because I created them as a, uh, a mechanism to help deal with what ended up being ADHD and not to mention the fact that we'll get into a little bit more that I was later diagnosed with autism and depression and anxiety. So all of those things and they reaffirmed or really for me confirmed for the first time the ADHD uh, because we went through this battery of tests that were not just a few pieces of paper. I mean, we were talking hours, si- hours sitting down with therapists, and it was just an evaluation in general. It wasn't an autism evaluation or anything like that. <laughs> it was a neuropsychiatric evaluation to um, really take a look at the whole person that you were and then nail down what you were experiencing. Um, and they right. it was a four-hour process. It interviewed both of us. Um, there was written tests as well as, well as verbal. Um, and, you know, it's one of those things that is very, very necessary in order for a complete diagnosis. And nothing to Dr. Dodson's, um, to discredit him, just I think what he did is he is an expert in the field of ADHD. And he very accurately recognized the ADHD. Our challenge and our complaint was that he didn't look beyond that. Right. What about these other things that I was affected by and the reasons why like my medication wouldn't be working? And so we went through and I tried every medication pretty much mm-hmm. uh, that you can think of for ADHD and none of them tended to be working. I started on smaller doses and titrated up and then I found a different doctor who really is the person that I would credit, uh, Dr. Curse. I guess I could say your name, right? Well, there was a doctor in between there. Was there? Mm-hmm. Oh, right. Mm-hmm. Who will remain nameless. Who very much missed everything. Right. So this other doctor was, Rochelle and I were seeing a couples therapist, and she was like seeing us individually and, and basically to me said, has anyone ever said you have autism? And I'm like, what is with these therapists? Everyone's like, did anyone ever tell you you have ADHD? Has anyone ever told you you have autism? It's like, no, I had no idea. Mm-mm. Nobody ever said anything. I, I was seeing this other therapist at the time, a psychiatrist, and I asked, you know, do you think it's possible that I have uh, autism? And he goes, um, no, because uh, you display emotion. I could still strangle him. Yeah. So I, which I thought was completely stupid. I'm like, obviously, I experience emotion, you asshat. Well, and deep emotion. I mean, if anything, you're the opposite. And I understand that one of the things we'll discuss throughout our podcast in multiple episodes is there's two different types of autism and the stigma in everyone's mind really does go towards a nonverbal, non-emotionally expressive autistic individual. And one of the bigger challenges, especially that we've uncovered, is that that doesn't represent the other half of the spectrum right that's one of the keys is that they explain that there is a spectrum of this whole thing and i am on the high end i'm on the high end of the spectrum which sounds the emotional which sounds much better than it really is (laughs) you're on the high functioning and highly emotional end i prefer to say high end (laughs) instead of the low end you are in luxury item it's okay that's right i'm in high demand that's right but the, you can tell the journey. So we've been through hell and back trying to get this figured out because in reality, we did not know what we were experiencing. But I, I think it's important to, to back up real quick. Okay, let's rewind. Um, one of the things that is fair to mention is that we are overachievers when it comes to tackling life change. All of this started in our world because we were thrown some really strong curveballs all at once. Right. Um, and it's really unfortunate because uh, we had the most beautiful wedding. Yeah, Absolutely. we prefer our balls in all shapes and sizes other than curved. <laughs> right. 
unless someone's going to give me a bat. We didn't have one. We got married. And three weeks after we were married, uh, your boss said, oh, you don't live in Southern California anymore. You're going to go move in Denver. And we were like, wait, move to Denver. No, we're still unpacking from the wedding. And he was like, no, you're packing up your car. And three weeks later, we lived in Denver. That's pretty much how it happened. In the next six months uh, following the wedding, we moved um, cross state. We uh, started a new job. We both did. So I understand that because the amount of change involved in each of these five things is so dramatic, you should really try and do one per year. And that this list includes getting married, moving, starting a new job, uh, a funeral, which you can't ever plan, but... Uh, yeah, you can. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, this one wasn't planned. My, grandma, my sweet grandmother... Sorry. Um, I'm just saying. Passed. My first thought was like, hit men. <laughs> a different age. My my grandmother died um, a month after... Actually, as we were moving into our new apartment in Colorado. Um, and then baby is the fifth one. And we um, thought we were going to have a baby, and then we weren't going to have a baby. So we did all of those things in six months. The first six months we were married. We did end up eventually having a baby who is now two and a half. But the journey from zero babies to one babies was a loss of four four babies. Yeah. Which we'll talk about on the next podcast. If if you can if you can hold on to your hats because it's hilarious it's a hilarious <laughs> tale. The point is when you quantify that much change, yes, on top of the emotional processing requirements of that, the physical um, exchange of your environment, not knowing anyone, you know. So we lost our social circle, um, we lost our emotional support, and we were starting all over as newlyweds in a brand new place in high altitude, by the way. So a factor in lack of oxygen. But, um, and all the weed, because we were in Colorado. Right. <laughs> so are all those weed drivers around. Oh, my goodness. I don't miss them. However, uh, as a result, we were already in a tentative place trying to land from all of the rocky transitions. And then my dad died. Your dad died? My dad died. Right. Sorry, just the way you said that sounded weird. <laughs> Fair enough. So when we talk about going into counseling, it's because we're wise individuals who very much appreciate the mental health profession. And um, your stepfather had just passed a few months earlier, and then my dad died. And you add all of that up, and we were like, someone needs to help us. This is a lot. Uh, important uh, thing to mention is that it should in my opinion, and I think Rochelle's opinion too, uh, view be, it should be viewed as something that is normal. And um, unfortunately, so often in our society to this day, uh, mental health is looked at as something that's wrong and um, something to be afraid of because or ashamed of. Uh, or ashamed of and um, we want to normalize uh, mental health just as much as uh, you know physical fitness. Uh, you're, you should you should be exercising your your mental fitness and your emotional agility, mm-hmm. you know, and, and those types of things. And so that's really what this is, is about as much as, you know, I, I can't help myself but joke about, you know, everything. But <laughs> <laughs> but the main point is to, uh, you know, get some people's uh, some answers and to, to help people realize that they're, you know, even though they may not be quote unquote, uh, normal or neurotypical, that doesn't mean that they're, you know, any less deserving of uh, answers to help them get them through their daily lives. And hopefully we can bri- provide some of that. Well, and I think that it's very underrated, the medical and the mental health profession. I know that um, we put a lot of effort into the medical side of things, but I would argue that the mental health professionals spend as much time studying um, trauma, change, um, cognitive behavioral therapy. They're constantly evaluating how life is changing uh, and, and how to best give us techniques. So, I mean, I'm sitting here with the first parent loss that I've experienced and it's overwhelming. 
And um, on top of all the changes and the miscarriages, there was just so much emotion that I didn't know how to process and I'm neurotypical. So I found myself in a place where I didn't recognize most of what was happening to me. I didn't understand how I felt. I didn't understand the pressure, the, the desire to fall apart. Like I didn't, I didn't realize how much of my self image was wrapped up in the way I felt about my relationship with my dad, which no longer existed. And so all of these things became reasons to seek out a mental health professional and a therapist. So we each have a fondness for our therapists because we know that without them, we wouldn't be here today in a variety of applications and reasons. But, but most importantly, it's educational, right? Because we don't constantly study things like codependency and anxiety and sleep disorder or PTSD. And all of those things have been experiences that we've needed help with over the last couple of years. And not to mention the fact that we now have uh, a growing population of neurodiversity. And there was a study, I don't know if I told you, but there was a study done. I've been searching constantly for it. And I finally came across one that estimates the number of autistic adults aged 18 and older in the United States. And I was kind of shocked to learn that the very first study done where we're trying to get a number, a ballpark number was done last year. Like 5.4 million people are estimated, adults, by the way, are, ad- are estimated to have autism. Um, it's like 2.2% of the population or something. And, and then at the very end of the report, they said, we're not sure this is accurate. We think this may be a, an underrepresentation. And um, based on my experience, I believe it probably is because we're just not fully aware of what the spectrum looks like and especially what the spectrum looks like in adults. So as I leaned on you to help me with um, the loss of my dad, it overwhelmed you and you, you know, did your best to give me space, but it was like my grief on top of your empathy was, it was, it was, it crushed us both. If I may interject, and this is in no way a sales pitch for anyone, but it is something that helped me and us, is uh, there's a book that you can get on Amazon called When Your Spouse Loses a Parent, Mm -hmm. Uh, What to Say and What to Do. And for someone who didn't realize that they had a very difficult time with certain social cues, um, this book was very apropos to the situation. It's um, by Irene Rodway and Caroline Madden. It's a really helpful book, um, probably something I should have read much earlier than I actually did. Um, I basically got the book because I had no idea what I was doing. And um, I should probably mention I lost my dad when I was 16. And so there was a lot of um, frustrating, frustrating feelings of frustration (laughs) (laughs) and and confusion on my part Um, because you know it's it's like if you're hungry then someone else is like I'm I'm hungry it's like but this isn't about you right now all of the feelings that Rochelle was feeling started kind of dredging up old feelings of my own and it, it you know it really wasn't about me and so the book was really helpful to kind of like redirect myself to um how I can be, how could I be as helpful as possible while she did whatever she needed to do. And, and what she needed to do was not to say it's, it was none of my business, but it wasn't my job to figure that out for her. Right. It was work I needed to do for myself. And at the same time, you were discovering your therapist who said, Hey, did you know you're ADHD? And so very quickly the two worlds collided And we threw ourselves into trying to figure out what being ADHD meant or what having ADHD meant. It it was just not something we were prepared for. It wasn't um, something we were uh, super aware of. Um, No one in your family had experienced an ADHD diagnosis that we knew of. So as far as uh, our experience, we were the first. And just basically looking around going, oh my goodness, (laughs) What, what does this world mean? Now, the one thing that Dr. Dodson said that I've never forgotten and always been very grateful for is he said, when you have an ADHD brain, 
it functions completely differently. And you don't have a brain that is motivated by reward and consequence. Instead, you have a neurology that is motivated by interest, interest and urgency. So it's basically like you've been running your life with the wrong owner's manual this whole time. And I thought that was really profound. And he gave us, you know, some some documents he'd written uh, that helped explain to bottle rocket temper and rejection sensitivity, euphoria and dysphoria, that dysphoria. Um, but he didn't really tell us what to do with that. It was like, great. OK, I now recognize. Here's yes. some pills. That's what he said. <laughs> here's some pills that will help you out. Our point is that, OK, great. Here's a new owner's manual. And now you have this diagnosis go figure out how to rework your entire life so that it works. I mean, no one really helped us through that process. And uh, and really, ultimately, that's the goal of our podcast here. And the goal of even the site, uh, Illuminate Neurodiversity, is to help people in the same situation we were when you just know something isn't right, but you don't know what. We want to shine a light on the fact that it could be neurodiversity in all of its um, different shades and colors on the spectrum, but also provide some support when it comes to implementing meaningful changes once you do receive a diagnosis that says, okay, now now you need to think of life differently. And what does that look like? You know, that's, that's a place we've been and uh, we're still learning. So <laughs> every day is like research for this uh, as we trial and error our way through. But uh, but you're not alone. And um, we're here and we're not alone because we're working through this together and now also doing the same thing for our two and a half year old son um, who has already started to collect some neurodiversity diagnoses. Once you start to recognize patterns, they do become more visible uh, and a lot of neurodiversity is genetic. It's passed down from generation to generation. I blame Rochelle. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, no. <laughs> You've got some neurodiversity on your side of the family. I do. Um, I do. Absolutely. I'm not unfamiliar with neurodiversity. And, uh, and my aunt and my cousin have been spending a lifetime working through it. She's 20 years ahead of us on the journey. She's part of the parental group who um, carved the road with a pair of binoculars and a machete and created the world we have now. I mean, 20 years ago, there was not aisles and aisles of gluten-free, rice-free food. I mean, they had to... Nope, food tasted good 20 years ago. <laughs> <laughs> they had to trailblaze all of those advancements, but... Um, I, uh, but you also have more neurodiversity in your family. Well, yeah, because I have a kid with you. <laughs> <laughs> his uncle. Right, my uncle. So my uncle's... Um, your brother, his uncle. My uncle's my brother. Oh, well, both, actually. You're getting really confusing now. I, my uncle is not my brother. My uncle and my brother are two separate entities. Completely. I was talking about Declan's uncle. The point that is valid is that neurodiversity has existed in your side of the family for what we think to be four to five generations and you're the first to find out well technically if okay if we're going there then my brother was the first to find out because <clears throat> i remember being like dude i gotta have a heart to heart with you and he's like okay what's going on and i was like i have adhd and he goes well i know that i have adhd i could have told you that and i'm like where have you been he goes i thought you knew none of it i had no idea Right. And he's like, oh, yeah, no, that's yeah, totally fine. And so then uh, I was trying to figure out because they say that, you know, it's typically passed down from a parent. So I was trying to figure out, like, which of my parents. And I, I realized it must have been my dad. I don't know. Is it a compliment to say someone has ADHD because they are super smart? But my mom's really smart, too. Mm -hmm. But just, you know what I mean? So I didn't know, like, which one. Of, my mom's like, well, couldn't be me. It must have been your father. Well, but there are some identifiable traits now this conversation we're having is incredibly legit because this is something that happens in family and it's happening every day in families is right. that our children the the pediatricians are doing a really good job of understanding autism signs early and so now we can diagnose children not we me you and me but the society medical community is able to diagnose children with ADHD with, sorry, with autism or neurodiversity as young as 14 months. There are many, many, many individuals who have lived to be adults in their 40s, 50s, and 60s that still haven't been 
diagnosed yet. So that's a huge accomplishment. The challenge is once the child gets diagnosed, then everyone does the exact same thing you just said. And they look around and go, well, where did this come from? If it's, you know, comes from a parent, is it you or is it me? And as you start to understand what you're looking at, you can see this little pathway light up back through your family tree that goes, oh, it's probably okay, probably that person and probably this person. And oh, not everyone has been living in a world without any support, without any recognition, no diagnosis. I mean, the world of adult neurodiversity is just now starting to get some attention. And the doctors are doing a really good job trying to teach each other. But it means that there's not a ton of support for us teach for them to teach us. Right. So I think too much focus, if I if I can be blunt, uh, is put on the children because eventually those children will be your neighbors, and <laughs> <laughs> if you don't help them when they're older, then it's gonna be shitty. It's just gonna be. It's gonna suck for you. Um, <laughs> yeah. Because so one of the things our son goes through occupational therapy and I was told when I was diagnosed with autism last year that I should find an occupational therapist. Uh, but, uh, um, Hmm. They don't really have those for adults. That was kind of the response that I got from the professionals was like, it'd be great if you were younger getting diagnosed with this so that you could be getting help Mm -hmm. in a certain way that you currently can't get help with because, and you can take the, lead on this one, Rochelle, but I mean, I believe what you said, there's not more help for adults with autism because of the, uh, the fact that most adults don't want to change. We don't want to change. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's what I was told. Now, Blake is absolutely correct. There's a strong, overwhelming, uh, amount of support and positively the children need it. The, the current philosophy is early intervention. What about me? That's what everyone that's an adult listening to this is thinking. What about me? Screw the children. (laughs) And I don't disagree. (laughs) I I believe our children need the early intervention, but I was really, um, heartbroken. And then, um, then I became upset as I continued to call autism center after autism center in our area oh, no, we only treat children until they're 12. Um, No, we only treat children until they're 10. I was like, what about the teenagers? What about the adults? They're just supposed to do what? Know how to make these changes? I mean, they've lived a few decades, you know, creating mental and behavioral and emotional grooves that are compensatory at best that don't, empower them to be their best selves and on all you're basically handing them is a diagnosis and saying um cut out gluten and sugar and exercise more reduce your screen time right which anybody could get that every single one of us needs as a way of you know as how should i live my life cut out gluten stop eating sugar and reduce your screen time get some more exercise it's like great i i have impulse control issues Right. And how do how do you you know how do I help with that? Well, here's this pill. It's like the, that's the response. There is no so then you have to add therapy into that, and and it really comes down to something that like I personally have a hard time with, which is self control. Right. And you're you're telling someone that's um, what's this part of the brain again? The prefrontal cortex. Yeah, the, whose prefrontal cortex is not fully developed, but everything else is fine. Just so you know. <laughs> <laughs> well, so you hang on. You're making a really, really valid point because no, I'm. I'm tr- I was going to get there. Oh, sorry. I was just trying to make you know Keep throw off. a couple funnies in there every once in a while. <laughs> um, I've got an underdeveloped prefrontal cortex, so it makes it harder for me to control my impulse. And you're asking someone that has that issue to completely rewrite their livelihood just on a whim almost mm-hmm. just to be like, well, you got to trust us. We're medical professionals. This is your diagnosis. We've proven it by all the letters after our names. And here's a list of books you can read and, you good know, luck. and yeah. <laughs> and here's a pack of smokes and good luck to you. So ADHD is really a disorder of executive function. Um, it includes Im- impulse disorder, you know, impulse control issues. It includes, um, the rejection sensitivity dysphoria. Dysphoria. Not you, if it was rejection sensitivity euphoria, I'd be walking around and be like, call me a piece of crap. Yeah. <laughs> <sighs> right. No, it's quite the opposite. You're very, very afraid of rejection, like overly 
worried about being rejected, um, which is a very valid emotion and a, a valid emotional response. But executive function is basically the part of the brain that processes our ability to hold um, information in our minds and string it together in a sequence to create long-term planning. So our ability or your ability to goal set, your ability to even goal seek, your ability um, to, to maintain information in your short-term working brain, like your work, working memory, like where'd you put your keys down, for example. So a lot of ADHD um, symptoms include losing things, losing track of time, losing track of you know, your own body sensations. So you may get hyper-focused on something and not have eaten for 12 hours. I mean, I've watched you do that. Or gone to the bathroom. Or yeah, the time and time again, you haven't. And you're just like, I gotta go pee. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm like pull over, I gotta go. So it's just all of these things involved in executive function. So when you're handing somebody a diagnosis of ADHD, and let's just separate the two. Let's just say you're just getting a diagnosis of ADHD and not also the coexisting autism, which is... At this point, they're coexisting about 80% of the time in recent studies. But let's just tease them apart and say you just have ADHD and you're still supposed to make all these life changes, yet you lack executive function and they don't hand you tools for understanding the diagnosis, much less turning that diagnosis into meaningful changes like, okay, maybe I need to evaluate my routine or maybe I need to evaluate you know, one thing at a time. How about my sleep hygiene? I mean, that was a term they use, like your ability to get to sleep. They're like, no, your sleep sucks. You've never been able to be a great sleeper. Can't get to sleep, can't stay asleep. Well, for the longest time, I I, ha I thought I would had insomnia. And then there was a point when I started taking medication where I was exhibiting pseudo-insomnia. Right. Um, that was hard. Where... It, and and that's pretty terrible because it's basically the sensation that you can't sleep, mm -hmm. but you're but you're fully asleep at the time. So you just always feel like you're laying there trying to fall asleep, but you're actually asleep. So I, you know, Rochelle would be like, "You were sleeping and snoring," and I was like, "You know," it, so you you don't wake up feeling rested. You're exhausted all the time, and then you know those types of things can lead to self medication. Uh, issues and uh which i fell into with uh with drinking mm -hmm. um and so that uh was a way for me to help to cope with my lack of being able to sleep so i would put myself to sleep mm -hmm. um unfortunately i didn't go right to sleep so there were some really unfun nights where i would be uh fully awake and definitely inebriated and um just desperate for some help and Rochelle was w without the same you know she basically had no clue what was going on and had no idea that I had ADHD or autism or I was struggling with depression and anxiety and all these things and was burdened with that and then really the medication and fine-tuning that uh, was was a really hard journey because I was so afraid of being medicated thinking it would make me feel like I wasn't myself and now I'm on a you know, I'm on medication now that I've been on for about a year. And so I'm finally starting to feel like it's weird. I'm starting to feel like I'm, I'm able to feel like my more like myself when I take my medication in the morning and I don't need to self-medicate and I sleep pretty well, um, as, as well as anyone else does. I don't really have the insomnia anymore. And that journey, although it took 30 seconds to explain, 10 well i mean it really took over 30 years to to get right. right but the the real beginning and end of that was the better part of 10 years right well that's how it all started right because you were having trouble sleeping and what what's really interesting about this story if you really back it up 10 years and we're going to cover a lot of ground on, on a really high level and then in future episodes we'll we'll dig in but on a high level 10 years ago Innately, just intuitively, you had this low-carb diet. I mean, when I met you, it was like, oh, yeah, chicken and vegetables. And you're just making these incredible meals and um, very low on the bread, very low on the pasta. You, were, uh, you had a very uh, dedicated workout routine. 
So you're going through a lot of physical exercise. You're She's burning- basically saying now I'm just a bread eating fat <laughs> slob. <laughs> well, let's, uh, Continue. A, Keep telling your story about how great changes, I used but, to be. But but at the same time, like you were doing all of the things you needed to do to to manage ADHD without medication, without any knowledge that you had it. You just were intuitively doing the things that made your body feel better. And you were in that intense workout program. I don't remember if it's whichever one you were. So, and just to, can you put a pin in that? Just sure. Because it would be unrealistic to expect anyone to do what I was doing. And, and even to the point where I myself could do that now would be very difficult because I was pushing myself to a limit that is not to say I'm like, I was in such great shape, but I was in pretty good shape considering the fact that I was, I was eating right. I was exercising, but I was running, you know, about 10 to 12 miles a day and then going to the gym and then working out for another 90 minutes. And this was every single day for months on end. And then I just was maintaining that. So that level of energy that my body required uh, me to get rid of on a daily basis was completely unmanageable mm-hmm. um, beyond that. Uh, and that was in a way self-medication. It was. Was the, you know, working out and the extreme nature of what I was doing. And then that was replaced with um, with drinking when the ability for me to maintain, because I need to have very specific goals and I need to have a very specific routine. Yeah, routine. Yeah set in place because once my routine changes then I I almost go into this weird thing where I recoil and then I have to find a new routine and the new routine I hope it's good I mean it was really difficult I mean there's the series of obstacles it's like when you were um, going to a gym and you had 24-hour access to your fitness center it allowed you the flexibility to fit in your exercise routine when you needed it and then when we moved in together we added the restrictions of the apartment gym and at the same time so there were issues with timing there that added a layer of complication we did not know was a struggle but then to add on to it um, there was the social aspect so it's a much 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 smaller gym and I would watch you feel oh if there's someone in there I don't want to be in there you know and the social anxiety piece would start to create an obstacle also something that didn't really exist when you were going to a gym at two o'clock in the morning or midnight you know um, I think the the apartment gym closed by ten. So, what what I'm the point that I'm making here is that yes, make your point, Rochelle. I know, right? I'll make my point. On your own, you had constructed a routine that fit within your schedule because you had a finite, a very limited, you know, amount of things you had to work around. So you had the most amount of flexibility to get all the things that you needed in place. And then as we moved in together and we changed apartments, you changed where you lived, you changed your gym, it added these layers of complication that then became obstacles. And I know you were, I would listen to you, I got to get to the gym, but we didn't recognize its importance in your daily routine. So if you didn't make it there, it was like, okay, never mind, I'll go tomorrow. And then tomorrow became next week and the next week became next month. And slowly the routine faded away into nothingness um, because we didn't understand how important it was to prioritize. I concur. So the point is that when you start to drift away intentionally or unintentionally from the things that are you're, that you're doing to help you feel better, it starts to create that cascade because over time, then you were having more difficulty falling asleep, something you didn't necessarily have when you had the, the exercise routine. You could put on friends and you could fall asleep in about 10 to 15 minutes. As you got further away from your exercise routine... Um, sleep became infinitely more difficult. I'd also like to point out, I I no longer need the show Friends to help me fall asleep. <laughs> I'm able to do it in a silent room with, with uh, it's completely silent and dark. You know, like a normal human. Fair enough. Background noise going, um, to a degree that it was net. It became necessary for me to fall asleep, and now. If I have that background noise, it makes it really difficult for me to fall asleep. So it's a a complete 180. Mm -hmm. Well, and adding in what we know now about autism and sensory processing disorder and how that changes uh, from a child into an adult, uh, we do understand that, you know, it's very common to need background noise as a way 
of sort of focusing. Um, and I think that there's a crossover with ADHD as well, but just because of the distractibility of things and, and sounds. And so there's a lot of emphasis in, in some households on background music just something to kind of take the edge off of all the chaos going on in your mind. I mean, I, I'm neurotypical, and, but I'm a massage therapist. And so in my world, I have learned that there's always spa music playing. And now it doesn't matter where I am or if I'm even in the treatment room, I always have background music going because it just becomes part of what soothes. And it sounds like spa music. <laughs> it's piano music. It's beautiful. Yeah. And that's what our son falls asleep to, at least some nights right well it just it he goes through phases where there's um based on his environment he can fall asleep in the what's good is that he can fall asleep in multiple environments so it's not that he he doesn't have that rigidity uh, when it comes to a sensory environment yet because he can fall asleep uh, at grandma's house um under those conditions he can fall asleep at daycare he can fall asleep at our house it's just different you know he doesn't have to have one specific way to do it Right. He's already showing those signs of trying to adapt. And, and that's something um, just wanted to add into that. Mm -hmm. The fact that, you know, people that are neurodiverse, a uh, one of the especially high functioning autistic people, one of the one of the problems and one of the reasons that those people go undiagnosed, those people, <laughs> you know, those those weirdos <laughs> um, go undiagnosed is because they sneak through um, by trying to look like the rest of you. Uh, so you we, mean you, right. You sneak through by trying to look like me, right? which so, is fair. And, I, I, and that's actually, what, I think that's what Declan I think is he doing. Does, yeah. he, he has a way of, uh, he's adapted to being when he's just with you and when he's just with me. And then when he's with the, with the two of us, he's he, even a little different. He's a little bit different in, in all three situations. And then you hear about him from his daycare and they're like, Oh, he's a dream. Well, and he is a dream. He's a dream with us too, but but he doesn't express himself nearly as much at daycare as he always has at home. Um, and I would say the same thing at, at, at grandma's house. You know, it can take him some time to really settle into to his groove. And what you're saying is a really important distinction, actually, because um, what you're talking about is camouflaging. Uh, yes. Also known as mirroring and masking. And I've seen you do this in public and it is it is like a master class in adapting to a social situation that that is unfamiliar. And I, I until I started learning about camouflaging and mirroring and masking, I had no idea what you were doing. I was just like, wow, he can just kind of slip into this role. And I just kept thinking it was because you have this innate kind of stage presence about you, you know, but. I'm smooth. That's yeah. what it is. <laughs> <laughs> but so but once smooth. I learned the concept of uh, of it, we went to I can't remember what we were celebrating, maybe an anniversary or something and um and very very quickly there was a a, a sharp personality um of the waiter and he kind of had a strong personality and so in, in if you were being yourself, your personalities would have totally clashed, but you being, you know, the gentleman and you know, public and in a, in a fine dining restaurant, you, you totally slipped in and you just mirrored and masked him and everything went really smooth. But I remember watching that situation going, yeah, but you're not being yourself. Like normally you would have been a little bit more comfortable to make some funny jokes or to, you when, know, when was this open up? We went to the melting pot in that. In, um, and we had some douchey waiter there. Mm hmm. I love the melting. He pot. wasn't. He wasn't douchey. He was just. He was just too much. Yeah, it was. A, he Wait, was a very well defined character. You said that otherwise we would have our personalities would have, would have matched. So I guess in a way you basically, I, you just got me to call myself a douche. No, I'm just saying you you toned down your character. Right, I dedouched. No, or <laughs> I, or I douched, if you will. <laughs> I'm just saying you weren't yourself. I just I watched right, it happen enough. and and um and it was a little disappointing actually that that how but also pretty impressive how quickly you just kind of shifted into this mode and and you were this camouflaged version of yourself and and over the years now I've studied that and it's a it's a real thing because it evolved from a place of not wanting to be bullied not wanting to be right. different. And, you know, you talk about children and we talk about the supports there and early intervention. One of the reasons 
why that is such an important thing is because children are the very first to identify when another child is different or they're not learning as fast as they are. And so the compare and contrast element of a child's brain is uh, it can be detrimental because they're the first to be like, oh, I'm, I'm doing this better than you or you're slow or, you know, like what's wrong with you? Something's not right. And it can very easily dampen the spirit of a child who much. That's why I'm dead inside. <laughs> right. <laughs> Thanks, kids. <laughs> you don't you don't know what's you don't you don't know what's going on. You don't know how to express it to your parents. Even they will listen to you and just think, oh, you know, you'll figure it out. You know, self-esteem, self-worth. These are these are concepts that we think develop innately. Um, they're also a product of a working executive function, which, you know, as we now know, is not necessarily a guarantee in everyone. So you add all these things up and yes, it's important to treat children that are neurodiverse and identify them early so that we can support them and, and not have them go through the same social torment that many of the adults these days talk about yourself included the PTSD. Uh, it's a real thing the emotional trauma of not fitting in of constantly being almost socially required to act neurotypical and I, I gotta tell you I don't think neurotypicals I, I'm just gonna speak for myself I, I don't necessarily think we're the nicest you know the with the population you should be modeling I, I think that uh, there's some social deficits um, in both camps and they're just different but I, I do believe that there's a, an air of superiority that comes with being neurotypical that has been inadvertently projected onto neurodiverse saying that you're inferior. And I just want to say for the record, I totally disagree with that philosophy because me I, too. I don't believe <laughs> that is a qualification for inferior or superior whatsoever. I, I actually, some of, some of the best conversations I have, um, where I really feel like I'm connecting and learning is with an individual who, um, is mental is what she's saying <laughs> develops differently than i do the, she loves talking to the developmentally disabled <laughs> i don't believe it is a disability i don't i don't i really do you, don't it's just it's just yeah no it's I, I i feel like because i'm on the spectrum i'm i'm allowed right technically i'm allowed to poke fun sure i should be allowed to poke fun because you know a little bit of self-deprecation never hurt anybody i well maybe a few people Maybe. God, may God bless their souls. Anyway, um, what were you talking about? I, I went off on a tangent, a uh, mini tangent, and I forgot what we were talking about. You were saying something really cool about me? <laughs> no? Okay, shoot. <laughs> I was talking about the importance for early intervention for children yes. to help Gotta avoid help um, some of the social trauma paths that uh, the adults have been unfortunately subjected to in the last couple of years, actually well, a couple of decades, just based on medical you know, science's need to catch up. I mean, one uh, one thing I can uh, say from, again, from personal experience is that, it, it's, and if my mom's listening to this, she's going to, you know, chime in and she'll have the exact date written down somewhere. But I'm going to say I was, I want to say I was eight or something like that. Maybe, maybe I was nine. I don't know. I was young. Uh, and... I ended up going to see a therapist and they missed all of this. I mean, the, it's, it's, it was a completely different world. You, you, you know, if, if I wasn't doing well in school, it was because I was lazy because I was clearly smart. I remember reading, uh, through some old, um, like a first grade, uh, like a report, report card. card. Yeah. That said, um, Blake is very, <laughs> Blake is very talkative and disruptive in class, but when focused is very bright. And it like almost like it struck a chord with me because it was kind of just like, yeah, that's true. I am talkative. I am a little disruptive, but God damn it. I am bright. I mean, and it's hard to say that because for the, for the longest time I've had low self-esteem. So that was the issue when I was a kid was that um, a group of, I just, I'll never forget this group of kids. They were all playing um, outside. We were all playing, house in one of those little plastic houses and there weren't you know all the roles had been filled mother father children next door neighbors they're, they're just like there weren't an, enough the play was like taken over it was there was no room for me 
And so they were kind of like, all right, piss off. And I just remember being like so uncomfortable. And now as an adult, I'm just like, oh, that kid, I feel so bad. I just want to hug him. Um, and I just like went off to the other side of the yard and started, uh, hitting myself and like putting my hands around my neck and like choking myself. And then the, um, the nanny, the babysitter lady, whatever, whose house we were at came out and luckily she was like, that's not good. And stopped me. And immediately my mom's like, he needs to see a therapist. And so your mom though, but that that was her. No, I know. But my point was that you know so yes i needed to see a therapist but i went i was in therapy for that whole time from age eight till eventually until i was maybe like a teenager till i was like 15 and then they started talking about medication and my mom's like nope you're not gonna medicate my kid um and uh i I never really got the help that i needed right you know so even if you have someone helping you that doesn't necessarily mean you have the right person helping you you need the right tools in your toolkit that's my point trying to get Mm -hmm. to that point is that i had a bunch of help i had you know therapist after therapist and i had a couple of therapists growing up and as much as i found it somewhat helpful so much of it was more about the outward part of my life like your family and your uh school life like your day-to-day yeah like my day-to-day but nothing to do with what was intrinsically going on with inside my body and my brain and how I felt because when I would say those things they were completely ignored and they were completely ignored until I was in my mid-30s until now I'm still in my (laughs) mid-30s fair enough well but I I will say one thing and and I know that um, you've been both grateful and critical of the support that you did or at least the attempt of support that you got but the one thing that was really key in 2017 when my father died and I was a complete train wreck and you were a complete train wreck and your stepfather had just died and we were still on the cusp of all the change and we had not really landed uh, comfortably in Colorado and found uh, what I would consider stability. As our world was spinning out of control, what you said was, let me find a therapist because I've experienced how being in therapy has helped me before and I just know that that's what I need to do I just know it and I didn't have any uh, experience with therapists now I'm a body worker so I have body worker therapist experience it's not the same but (laughs) mental health therapy was not something that was introduced in my world Uh, is definitely not with any positivity so it was not where my brain went to and it would not be a solution I would have searched for but you did have that experience. So even though it wasn't a hundred percent right and, and not to discredit, you know, the therapist at that time, they didn't know. I mean, it wasn't until 1994 that they even really started to understand that autism was out there, much less how to apply it to a then, you know, teenage child. I mean, you, you would have just barely been a teenager at that point. So in 1994, I would have been 10. Oh, right. You're younger. Um, Sorry, sorry, Rochelle. Does that sting? Does that sting <laughs> okay. a little bit? Okay, I'm I'm a little bit more wise and mature than you. <laughs> That's not a problem. That is that that is for sure. <laughs> I'll give you that. Wise and mature. You you, you definitely I've hit the milestone birthdays a little faster yes. than you have. That's okay. But my point is that you at least had um, enough faith and recognition that to go back into that world and find support. And had you not explored you know finding a good therapist we never would have uncovered autism we never would have covered uncovered adhd we never would have uncovered anxiety and depression and we hear so many commercials on tv about well we don't because we don't listen to commercials but anxiety and depression that i think at this point they actually are too easy to forget but anxiety and depression um, are also neurodiverse conditions um, and they often coexist with uh, anxiety Um, sorry, with ADHD and autism. So it's important to look at this as a whole and, and come back to a big hole, (laughs) not a, not a black hole, but as definitely a white hole. No, as an encompassing network, (laughs) I'm looking at it a little differently, but you're right. A big white hole of opportunity to learn 
um, because there's so much crisscross. And the truth of the matter is that we're still just now being able to understand how it relates to our current population and what that even means that we can do. And so it's going to take all of us kind of working together to figure that out alongside the medical and mental health profession. But we do our part by also interacting with them because our experiences will continue to help their development and their experiences will continue to help our development. So it's, it's cohesive. And yes, what she said, (laughs) medication may be necessary. Yes. Extremely necessary. I can say I, I love my fun pills. They, they make things better, but not to discount diet and nutrition and supplementation and even um, experimentation and activation and there is a a level of experimentation in there every body is a little bit different doctor's uh uh prescription and uh, for the medication yes well that's what i'm talking about i didn't mean like experimenting with like heroin or anything oh no i thought you meant experimenting with like magnesium that you're gonna go all out and party on me no magnesium no magnesium zinc omegas that's right. I take my vitamins, okay? Nerf 2, Nerf 1, Pro Tandem. Oh, my God. Stop trying to sell this crap. <laughs> Not selling it. I'm just saying there's value no, in I know, supporting I know. the body. I know. I know. I, and uh, and I, I, know I, really, I felt really bad that I just said this crap because I know that's something you really stand behind and, uh, and it's something that's important. So, But, yeah, I mean, nutrition is a huge part of all of this and we don't get our enough nu- uh, nutrients from the foods that we eat. So it is important a lot of the times to supplement and some of those uh, products are very good um and sometimes you know they're they're not the types of things you can get just over the counter you have to go through special sources that Rochelle has access to and we'll hear from that in this next commercial no i'm just kidding <laughs> <laughs> i do think it's a good place to wrap up for today i i i do believe that uh we have a lot of content to cover we have a lot of experience that we're willing to share i mean in my day-to-day life right now, I have the opportunity of being back in the treatment room and I'm talking to a lot of parents and um, a lot of teachers. So this world of neurodiversity is is definitely something that everyone is paying attention to. And what I ask is that everyone continues to learn with an open heart, with compassion uh, for everyone. I, I don't believe that any of us deserve any less attention, um, but we do need to work together to make sure everyone's needs are getting met. Um, neurodiverse or neurotypical, uh, the, the process is, is similar in terms of just being compassionate and loving to each other. Yes. And um, I'm a big believer that dick jokes will be uh, the thing that saved the world. <laughs> well, that's your category of expertise then. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to bow out to you. Okay. Um, so that's how I'd like to leave it. Um, I mean, I think that to just circle back really quickly to the title of this podcast, you don't sound autistic. Um, I appreciate you, Blake, being here with me today and being here with me on most of our podcasts because you are very articulate. And oh, wait, I thought I was the co-host. I'm, I'm not going to be here on all the podcasts. You're the, <laughs> that's what I'm saying. I'm thanking you for being my co-host. Let me say it more directly. You said most. Go ahead. Keep keep going. <laughs> no dead air. No dead air. Sorry. I didn't. I misspoke. Um, I'm just thanking you for, for having the bravery to, to be here today with me and all the future days and talk about things that are deeply personal, things that we have uh, experienced that can be, um, you know, that were earth shattering for us and can be even embarrassing. But I believe that the bravery uh, that you have in helping to tell your story and sharing the possibilities of what life can be with others is is incredibly empowering right now and I just want to thank you because you don't sound autistic uh, but I can tell everyone I do look autistic <laughs> you, you can you can <laughs> but but from living with you um, I do know that that this isn't just a joke like you no, I know. you're constantly working to be your best self and it and it does require different types of effort and I said some serious stuff on here. You've said some amazing things. I mean, your your perspective See? and your experiences are very valid to me, and I just appreciate you sharing them with everyone else. Yeah, I no comment. I that's I couldn't have said it better yourself. <laughs> okay. 
I don't know what that, I, don't, I don't even know what that means. I just uh I would I would say we've been trying to do this podcast uh for the longest time and I appreciate your husband taking time out of his busy schedule <laughs> to uh put these microphones together and to set up the audio because I got to tell you he's one hell of a guy that guy. He is and he's going to edit this for me too, I hope. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, he'll I'm sure he will. Um okay. Now we're at the awkward point where we either kiss goodnight or we fist bump. So <laughs> what, what do we do here? How do we end this bad boy? Or do you think we should go out with some music or I get bye. I guess that's the end. Bye. We'll be back <laughs> in a week with more. All right. I'm Blake. I'm Rochelle. And uh, oh shit, and this outro. is You Don't Sound Autistic. Maybe you just say you don't sound autistic and I could say thanks. <laughs> <laughs> This has been a recording of You Don't Sound Autistic with Blake and Rochelle. We'll see you next time. Is that good? I don't know. I don't either. <laughs>